0: Okay, the, this is the scripture reading, not the meditation. Luke 15, 11 to 24. And for the scripture meditation, it's going to be the story of Esau and Jacob in Genesis, thinking five or six. Uh, okay. Well, that's Cain and Abel, that would work too. What's going on here? Cain and Abel, Genesis four. You said
1: Esau and Jacob. Yeah, well,
0: I I'm having trouble finding Esau, (laughs) Jacob. So we'll do Cain and Abel. It's the same possibilities. Um, Yeah, let's read the whole chapter. So chapter 4, Genesis 4.
2: Good morning. Of the family, I'd ask your prayer for uh, his wife, my aunt. Uh, she's been in assisted living as well, uh, under problems with dementia. So keep the uh, the son and the daughter, Jim, and the sister, uh, that they would have benefited from my uncle's Christian walk. Requests or? Marcy's dad. Marcy is not here because (coughs) of her dad. You know, they've got that memo. How is she holding up? Anyone else? (coughs) Nothing else? Okay. Our scripture for meditation morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, and it will be verses 1 through 12. you stand with us as we begin our worship with prayer. Tim, may I ask you to lead us in prayer, please? remain standing
3: would you take your red hymnal this morning your trinity and turn to number 179 179 in the trinity should have this one memorized, but I think it's in the brown. Mm. Number 284 in the brown. How come this song, do you have a reason, Elizabeth? I didn't hear you say it again. It's your favorite song. Awesome. great. It's a great song. Thank you. Now our scripture reading for this morning
2: is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. And that will be page 1624 in your pew Bibles. When you come to that, please stand with us.
1: I am no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired servants so he got up and went to his father while he was still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him the son said to him father I have sinned against heaven and against you I am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants quick bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet bring the fattened calf and kill it let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found so they began to celebrate
3: you take your red hymnal again and turn to number 140 one four zero in the red.
0: Our scripture text today is Luke 15. Luke 15 Last Lord's Day we consider the lost coin. We're looking at in this series of the gospel that Jesus preached. And he told stories, they're called parables. But often that's the way he taught. Last Lord's Day, we consider the lost coin. That was the second parable in the trilogy in which Jesus taught on three lost things. Each of these things demonstrates some particular characteristic of God in relation to the salvation of sinners. The story of the lost coin emphasizes the joy of God when sinners turn from their sin and come to him. A woman lost... One of her ten silver coins, which she possessed, each coin being worth a full day's wages in her day. She illuminated the house, swept and searched inch by inch, did it a couple times until she found the lost coin. And upon finding her coin, she called all of her neighbors and friends together to celebrate her joy. Jesus' application showed us that He had not been talking about lost coins at all. But he was talking about lost sinners. Such people are found when they repent of their sin and come to God in faith, trusting the Savior to forgive and cleanse them. And when this occurs, there is rejoicing by God before holy angels in glory. They with him join in the joyous celebration. And we trace through scripture those places which show God rejoicing over sinners who turn from their evil ways. God's joy is extended to even one sinner who comes to him. And we are reminded that not one person for whom Christ died will be eternally lost. The shepherd, excuse me, the sheepfold and the set of coins will both be complete. The lesson to us was, as God relentlessly seeks sinners, whom he has ordained to eternal life, so we should seek the lost as well. Our labor is not in vain. And secondly, when they are found, when men repent, it is an occasion of joy, even if the number saved is only one. Well, today we come to the third story in Luke 15 on lost things, and that's the story of the lost son. As we come, let's ask for the enablement of our Lord. Father, we thank you for these uh, parables, these storylines that Jesus used to teach the truths of eternal life and salvation. And we pray that you will bless the truth of your word it is engraved for us in the holy scriptures for which we are very thankful we don't have to guess at these things they are written down by inspiration of the holy spirit you gave them to the people of the new testament special apostles in luke's case a friend and operative with one of the apostles and lord The story went on and the story was preserved because of your grace and your goodness. So as we look at the lost son in that account, we ask, Lord, for your enablement. May anyone here who is lost come to see that God is seeking them and he will find them. They must be ready to repent in order that he may be found by them. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Of the three stories which Jesus told to his audience on this occasion, this is the most lengthy. It's the most detailed, and it is the most pointed. So it's going to take two sermons from me to do justice to it. In this, the metaphors, have given way to reality. No longer does Jesus talk of sheep wandering off to describe sinners fleeing from God. Nor does he talk of lost coins which need to be found. No, now he talks of a father who had two sons, one who quit the family and headed for the hills. What is more, the elements of being lost and being found and of rejoicing over the person who comes home to God are all heightened by this account. And as we might expect, there are new elements introduced in this story, not apparent in the other two. More details of what occurs when people wander away from God their lifestyle, their spiritual decline, their hopelessness. It's all here. There are also more details on the repentance process, the thinking which must occur, the assessment of one's life, the honesty which must be brought to the condition of the soul and the sin which has occurred. We learn as well more about the compassion of God. In receiving repentant sinners. his watching out a window. So to speak. For any sign of men. Returning to him. So that they may. Rush to their aid. He may rush to their aid. With mercy and with forgiveness. Did you ever think of that? That God is watching out a window. He's looking for you to come to him. He's the, it's the father looking for the lost son we are all taught in this account great detail and the degree of rejoicing which occurs in god's in, in god's presence over the convert of just one per one person the life of one brings joy to god and then, sadly, we are also shown the envy and the lack of compassion and the greed of some over the fact that sinners are given such a high position in the family of God. When they are the one who's lived a sober and a moral life, that's the older brother, which we'll talk about next week. Not everyone is happy the way God saves people. So this is a marvelous parable full of great hope for anyone who has ever strayed from God and you will find it only here in the Gospel of Luke. So then, as we come to the parable of the prodigal son, which he's often called by us, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that's found in the Gospel of Luke only. And we're thankful that the apostolic writers, in this case Luke, included this in his record. Because it so hits home. It hits home so hard that it is disturbing. It's commonly known as the prodigal. Prodigal means wasteful or extravagant. The wasteful son And it's very difficult to preach on because of its familiarity. Though Luke's gospel is the only one which records it, this parable is probably the best known of all these story illustrations which Jesus taught. Maybe paralleled with Good Samaritan. So Lord, when people already know what you're going to say, they tend to fall asleep. It's like repeating ninth grade English in the 10th grade. Well, people may know what's coming, may think of it as yesterday's news, but Lord, you can use the word of God, which is old and established, to bring salvation to our new age. We thank you for this. And pray that you will bless us with your presence. In Christ's name. Sometimes we think of these stories as yesterday's news. I think even people of the world know about this parable. They may. I mean, depends on if they've had any kind of church Exposure whatsoever. But they tend to throw it away. It's like our newspapers. They're printed on cheap paper, they're meant for you to read the stories there, then go to file 13. The paper isn't meant to last years and years on your bookshelf. It's only to convey the news of the day. And having completed that task, it's free game for wrapping your garbage or lighting your fireplace tomorrow. But I caution you, don't let the familiarity in this case of this story, don't let that breed contempt. This is not a news item of the day which will be gone tomorrow. This is a story immortalized on the pages of God's word which abides forever. And its lessons reach into our century from the lips of Christ, the Son of God. So I'm saying it is as contemporary as the day Jesus spoke it. It is revelant to me It's relevant to you. None of us will find ourselves exempt from its teaching and free from its application. So what's the story? Well, the father had two sons. One day, the younger of the two said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father complied. Verse 12. He divided his property between them. What them? Well, between the younger son and the older son. It's two sons. They both des- uh, d- deserve an inheritance of the estate. But the younger one is claiming his inheritance now. Now, dad's not dead yet. He's still around. The farm is still in his name. But the younger son wants his inheritance right now. The only way to do that was to divide the state there and then. Okay, here's your portion. The older son, here's your portion. I'm still alive, but that's the way it is. The things you decide to do affect every other person with whom you are associated. Gotta look at this older son. He's not saying, give me my share of the estate. He's happy right where he's at. But the younger son is forcing the issue. Once it's divided, it has to be divided in order for him to get his portion. May I say the things you decide to do affect every other person with whom you are associated. Paul taught, none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone, Romans 14, verse 17. You're interconnected in a vital way. You young adults here this morning need to take a special note of the principle because of the character in our story. It was the younger brother who thought to himself, I need to get away. I've got to get free of the control of my parents, my brothers, my sisters. And to do that, I need money. I need my inheritance now, not later when dad and mom are dead and gone. But he never thought that his decision would affect the father's land holdings and his brother's interests in the family farm. All he knew was that he wanted out. And he didn't much care about how his decision to leave home would affect the others whose lives were intricately connected with his own. Maybe your decisions have nothing at all to do With leaving home prematurely. That's not the point. The point is. That whatever your decision. To smoke. Or not smoke. To run with a rough crowd. Or not. To engage in premarital sex. Or to abstain. To cheat on an exam at school. Or to earn your grade honestly. To drive faster than the speed limit. Or to obey the law. To drink alcohol or not. Any decision you make, all of the decisions you make touch the lives of your family. You cannot escape this link because God has made you interdependent as members of the same family and in the Christian community as members or as friends of the church. We're all connected. According to Jewish law, when the father Of Jesus' story. Divided his estate. The regulation was this. Let me read it for you. He must acknowledge the firstborn. By giving him a double share of all he has. The son is the first of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Deuteronomy 21 verse 17. So we're going to divide the land. The firstborn would get the lion's share. And then the younger one would get the remainder. You remember that this was a big issue. Dominant role in the rivalry between Jacob and Esau. And their parents, of course. Isaac and Rebekah, as each tried to champion the cause of their favorite son why would they have a favorite son I don't know but they did and in Jacob and Esau's case Esau was a hunter he was not interested in farmland he therefore despised his birthright privileges and he had to contempt for God's law the father of our story would have gone by the book which means that his older son would have received two-thirds of the family farm And his younger son, one third. But you know, even one third is a sizable sum in a large estate. I would take a third of a million dollars, wouldn't you? Could live off of that for the rest of my life. The younger son, however, was like Esau, he didn't care for farming. And so he had no use for land, no matter how valuable it was. No, he wanted cash. And so he took his third of the land, sold it off. It was the father's estate. Converted the land to cash. And then he headed for the hills. We know this because in verse 30, the older brother complains to his father. And he says, this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. That is, the money he received from selling his father's property was spent on immoral affairs. Do you see how this young man's decision to take his inheritance now has affected everyone else in the family? His dad had to sell off a third of his estate to accommodate his son's desire. There was no cash in the bank. The value of the estate was in the land. The father lost a third of his farm to another businessman, all because his younger son demanded his inheritance now. How selfish and self-seeking this young man was. And how characteristic of many young people in our day whose every decision centers around their own gratification regardless of the pain and anguish they cause their families. And what does this young man intend to do with his money? Was he going to start up another kind of honorable business which would become the means of supporting himself And his own future family? So he didn't like farming. Okay, fine. Would he then go to the building trade or into some kind of manufacturing of goods? Did he plan to open an inn or some other kind of service industry? Any of this would have been well received. I grew up in a farm community the kids who went to school with me, all lived on farms. All of them. No exception. And they were required to do farm chores when they got home from school, as was I. Farming is a noble profession. We city folk couldn't survive without farmers. But these kids had their fill of the farm when they were growing up, and I know a very few who picked up where dad left off. Most of them went into other job markets, and when their parents became too old to manage the farms, the land was sold. It was converted into cash, and the money was used to support mom and dad in an apartment, house, or some such rest home. And it is the money left over which will become the inheritance of the children. Now there's nothing wrong with that. Farmers is not the only noble profession. But Junior, in our story, had no such plans for his inheritance money. Not long, long after he got his grubby little hands on his money, He packed his bags. He hopped on a Boeing 747. He flew to Tahiti where the Polynesian women of ill repute were all too willing to indulge his lusts by prostituting themselves for his money. Ooh, this guy's got money. Verse 13 tells us he squandered his wealth in wild living. He bought himself a new red Ferrari convertible With a woman in each arm, he hit the gambling casinos and the nightclubs, living it up with hot cars and hot women and opulent, extravagant living. Hello, Hunter Biden. Yeah. And for a few brief months, Junior was Mr. Hotshot. While the money flowed, he was the most popular guy in all of the night spots. He had friends galore. Everybody loved him. He ate the best cuisine. He drank the finest wines. He wore nothing but designer clothes. He lived in the penthouse on the top of the Grand Hilton. Servants waited on him, his every desire. Everywhere he went, his reputation as a big spender preceded him. His money got him into the private country clubs and the exclusive resorts. He bought the latest stereo equipment. He set up a state-of-the-art theater in his apartment. He imported caviar from Russia, lobsters from Maine. His shoes were hand-carved and handcrafted in Italy, and his suits were flown in from France. He was a farm boy out of his environment, Sowing a few wild oats, living it up within the pagan world, doing the things he loved to do, and indulging himself in every kind of sensual pleasure that his money could afford. All of this he did in the far country, away from the watchful eyes of his parents, so that his conscience would not be convicted because of his profligate lifestyle. Oh, but eventually, the money ran out. Worse. A severe famine hit the whole country where this young man was frolicking and with no more money to spend and a shortage of food to spend it on, even if he had the money, this young man was compelled to hire himself out to a pig farmer on the island. And his job was to slop the hogs. Anyone here ever done that? I have. George says he has. But think of this. A Jew feeding pigs. How demoralizing. What is more, the pigs were at least eating the carrot buds used to fodder in that land, but this young man's stomach growled with emptiness and lack of nourishment. He was literally starving to death as he watched the pigs get fatter and fatter. He would have gladly eaten the pig food if only his digestive system could have handled the coarse pods. But as it was, he could only watch as the pigs got fatter and as his own body wasted away. Hey, where were all those friends on which he had spent his fortune? Uh, Where were all his buddies from the country club who had enjoyed the parties that he used to throw? And what about that business associate to whom he had lent $500,000 to open a new McDonald's on Sunset Boulevard? Verse 16. No one, no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. What's that? It's this. All of his so-called friends vanished into the woodwork. They had troubles of their own. I mean, think about it. The McDonald's went bottom-up on vacant, uh, up in a vacation resort where steak was more prized than hamburgers. Famine caused everyone to rein in their last resources and to hoard their belongings For themselves. Mr. Hotshot. Was out of the penthouse. And on the street. The very day his visa car. Bounced. But as he sat there on the fence. Watching the pigs fill their bellies on carapods. God granted him. Repentance. He came to his senses. Verse 17. He realized at last that, you know, life on the farm, it wasn't all that bad. In fact, he realized that while he was starving in the far country, he knew his father's servants were eating well back on the farm. And his realization of his sin is worthy of note. He goes on to say, Not long after the younger son got together. All he had, he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen in that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out. I'll go back to the father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. This confession is remarkably a- accurate. Young people, whenever you sin against your parents, it is a sin against God in heaven too, who set your parents over you for your good. This young man understood that there was an authority over his parents whom he had disobeyed and before whom he must give an account for his actions. You should know the same. And in his coming to his senses, this young man did something else. Verse 20. He got up and went to his father. That's the mark of true repentance. The father's reaction is recorded for us. Look at verse 21 and following. But while he was still afar away his father saw him and was filled, <clears throat> excuse me, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you." I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And he was lost And is found. And so they began to celebrate. Any blessing we receive from God, whether good health or sharp mind or financial success or positions of power, positions of influence, these things sometimes we spend on ourselves. Elon Musk has been in the news of late. Here is a billionaire many times over who owns Tesla Corporation that produces Tesla cars. He also owns a space agency that shoots rockets into space for our U.S. government. He's denied his own special battery so he can run battery-powered cars for up to 600 miles before they have to be charged. Men of the world generally are not living with the effect of God's kingdom in mind. They're completely consumed with self-interest as with this younger brother in the story. Squandering wealth in wild living is a truth which could be written over the lives of many young adults in our day. And I'm not saying Elon Musk does that; he seems to be very level-headed. But my point is, the money God gives, the successes, the promotions, the authority over others seems to have no benefit beyond, beyond making it life easy and plush for themselves. Paul in describing the Ephesian brethren before before their conversion also accurately re- represents us. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, he includes himself, see, all of us, including me, also lived among them at one time, Where? Well, among the pagans, as this young man in the story, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 and following. Doesn't that sound like the young man in our story? Doesn't it describe you before you knew Christ? Doesn't it accurately portray the lives of those who do not know Christ? It's just Whatever they make, they live for themselves. You see, this young man thought that in putting some distance between him and his father, he would be free of control, but he was enslaved to a hidden master. Paul calls that master the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Jesus taught, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. John 8, verse 34. And since the Bible elsewhere reports that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty-three. then... There are none who are as free in their choices as they think they are. All men serve another master. It is either the Lord God or the ruler of the kingdom of the air who is Satan. And because both of these masters are spirit beings, their immediate influence is not always consciously apparent. But they are there nonetheless. And John tells us how to discern which spirit is working behind the scenes in our lives. Here's the way he puts it: We, he's talking about he and the other apostles, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But who has never, who, whoever is not from God, does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. 1 John 4, verse 6. Oh, there are more tests which John gives. 1 John 4, 15 and 16. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God is in him. Or 1 John 3.10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And then he states, Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Ooh. Do you know why the story of the lost son is so familiar to us? It's because it describes The humanity of our day with such clarity that it is as though Jesus were standing on the street corners in Detroit. Every one of us, from the gray-headed seniors in our midst to the young child, can identify with this younger brother who fled from God to do his own thing. We are just enslaved by our lusts. We cannot escape... On our own. Isaiah put it this way. We all. Like sheep. Have gone astray. Each of us has turned. To his own way. This was the younger brother. In Jesus parable. And even more disconcerting. It is all of us. To a person. Period. And if you don't know this about yourself, then you don't know anything. Secondly, we learn from this story that the way of sin is hard. It is not easy street. This young man thought he was living on easy street. When he had money to burn, women fell all over him. Men patted him on the back, told him how great he was. The beautiful people of the world and the influential doted on his every word as though he somehow knew the secrets of turning a dime into millions. Little did they know that his money was a gift. It was an inheritance. It was the fruit of another man's labor. And that this young man knew nothing about the self-discipline it takes to succeed in life. He was living on his good fortune until the fortune ran out. You know, sin is a hard task, Master. Satan will allure you into thinking that sex and liquor and money and fine food And clothing and fast cars. Oh, that's really living it up. Oh boy. But in the end, such sinful indulgence brings a man low as it did this young man. When his money ran out, this young man found out that all of his companions were fair weather friends. By which I mean all of his companions could be found nowhere. Uh, hey, uh, guys, so long as he paid the bills. He had lots of friends, put in quote. People egging him on at the blackjack table, people of the country club teaching him how to play polo, aerobics instructors to keep him trim and fit, a private chef to prepare his favorite cuisine. But when God sent famine into the land, a severe famine, the scripture says, which indiscriminately ruined the crops of the rich and the poor alike. This young man couldn't get so much as a crust of steel bread from his friends. They had used him and he was happy to be used because it made him the big shot for a few brief months. Undoubtedly there is pleasure in sin. The Bible says so. but it says that the pleasure is for a short time, Hebrews 11 verse 25. Certainly that was the case for this young man in Jesus' story, but along with the pleasure of sin is the judgment of God for such disobedience, and the judgment of God runs concurrent with the pleasure. What I'm saying is you don't have to wait for judgment day to reap what you sow. You reap it now. When I drove bus for the city of Lapeer I transported people on my bus from apartments To the seedier side of town, you may not know it, but there is a seedier side of Lapeer. At least there was when I was driving the bus. These were women who sold themselves as prostitutes. They were the drug addicts looking for their next fix. They were ex-college students who never made it into the job market because they wasted away their opportunity at school, partying every night of the week instead of studying to make the grade. They were ex-husbands and fathers who had lost their families to drunkenness. They were young mothers who had babies out of wedlock and whose boyfriends headed for the hills the day they found out that their girlfriend was pregnant. I'm sorry. Little appear. That's the reality. And the prostitutes are often bruised and beaten from some violent escapade the night before. The drug addicts couldn't even count their 75-cent bus fare Because their minds were completely burned out with drugs, I had to take their shaking hands and hold them and pull the coins out of their hands and drop them into the coin box. They were ex college students going nowhere. First, working at Burger King and McDonald's for $5 an hour back then. They were husbands, ex husbands, ex fathers who were isolated and lived alone in the world of booze and poverty. They were unwed mothers seeking out an existence on ADC handouts with scarcely enough money to clothe their families, let alone house them. Pleasure in sin? Yes. Oh, but much more pain than pleasure. God says the way of the transgressor is Hard. Proverbs 13 verse 15. Isaiah in Isaiah 57 verse 21. And following concurs. There is no peace for the wicked. He writes. Asaph envied the wicked. In Psalm 73. Complaining to God. That he, Asaph. Had kept his own heart pure in vain. That is for nothing. Nothing. And he began to talk about how the people of the world, they're living on the high side of things. There's no pain in their life. They're they're not hungry. They're not starving. They're not naked. They're clothed. They have jobs. They have work. They're moving along in society. God had to show them otherwise. God had to show Asaph, look at their end. Look at where they end up. And when he finally discerned their destination, he recanted his earlier position and he stopped complaining. Asaph. But we do not have to discern the end of the wicked to see the misery of their lives. Ryle in his book writes the secret about the secret wretchedness. Wow. The secret wretchedness of the profligate sinners. Is everywhere apparent. They can see it themselves. If they dare to look. And I say to young people here this morning. Dare to look. Take a look before you jump. Look long and hard at this young man. In Jesus story. He went from easy street to being in need, verse 14, and in need with no one willing to rescue him. True indeed was the words of Paul. The one who sows to please his sinful nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit of God from that Spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians 6, verse 8. His question in Romans 6, verse 21 gives the substance of the question which will be asked in the day of judgment. Here's his question. All of us should take it to heart. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Boy, that's a sobering thought. I like my lifestyle. I don't care what the book says. There may be some here today who are like this young brother in Jesus story. You're heading to destruction at breakneck speed. You think that you will at least have fun before you reach the wall at the end of the dead end street. But Jesus tells you that the roadway itself is hard to travel. You don't have to wait till you get to the end. There's a famine in your soul which will bring you to need and poverty long before the day of judgment arrives. It's time to come to your senses. It's time to turn around. It's time to go home to God where you belong. This is the gospel Jesus preached. Let's pray. Our Father, stir our hearts, especially work in the hearts of young people. Help them to see that all that glitters is not gold. It is not. And if they pursue this lifestyle of this young man in our text, they will end up where he did. Feeding pigs. And unable to even eat their food because it would destroy their stomachs. But if they were to stay in the Father's house, if they would come to the Father and confess their sin... Forgiveness would await them and restoration would await them. They would be back in the Father's good graces. But they're so stubborn. Well, me and Dad, we just don't get along. Yeah, well, why is that? Because of a sinful lifestyle that you want and Dad doesn't want to approve of it. He doesn't want to support it. Lord, help us to look into the mirror of God's Word and to see ourselves for what we really are, and grant us the repentance that we don't have and the faith that we don't have. Let us come back to the Father's house where all joy and salvation awaits. In Christ's name, Amen. Our closing hymn is from excuse me from uh, Trinity Hymnal and it's number 464 464 in Trinity That's what redemption will do for us it will take the haters of God and the haters of righteousness and make them lovers of God and lovers of righteousness those that want nothing to do with God the Father ruling their lives because they went to the far country and in the far country they could do everything they wanted to do and no one said a thing everybody was having a high old time on liquor wild living and the sorts. And they found out that there was an end to that. And even if they didn't make it to the end, their life on that road was miserable. And God the Father came along and drew them back and welcomed them back. We'll see about that next week. This is a wonderful story of redemption. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you don't give up on us you never give up on us If we are your people chosen before the creation of the world loved by you there isn't any conditions to that love I could say it this way in your omniscience you knew what you were getting and it wasn't very good we were rotten to the core you knew that you also knew what you can do and what you do do through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. We sing a hymn at times Jesus paid it all, so all to Him I owe. Yes, and that's so very true. You washed us clean through the blood of Christ. And if there's any here today and they don't know Jesus, He's the key. In His own words, He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes before God the Father except through me. He's the key. He's the door. He's the traveling road. He's the way. We can say it many different uh, usages of different words. But he said it best when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes before the Father except through me. Lord, if there's a searching individual here today, may they reach out in repentance and faith. May they grab hold of that truth which is found in the word. Lord, more importantly, may you grab hold of them and draw them by your saving grace into your kingdom. For your glory and their good, we pray these things. Amen. We're dismissed. Thank mm-hmm. Uh, two blogger